showtime. everyone. Welcome to the Rosie and Bill show. I'm Rosie DeSanctis with Bill Miller here. We have such a fun show for you tonight. We absolutely do, partner. In fact, our guest tonight started his career on Broadway and since that time has become one of the all-time great voice actors in the business. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show the one, the only, Charlie Adler. Charlie, welcome to the show. <laughs> I, I thought you were talking about somebody else. <laughs> Feel <laughs> clap, yay. Who's, who's gonna come into my house? <laughs> Charlie, I have to tell you, it's been so much fun. Like, before we even turn the cameras on talking to you, you're, you're just such a hoot, and we're, we're really happy to have you on the show. We had such a great conversation, a pre-interview the other day. I was drinking tequila on my deck, talking <laughs> like you guys. It was, we talked for like an hour or something. We did, I, we did. It was, it was, we should have had it recording then. Yeah. That would have been just as fun. But, you know, I don't think a lot of people in this country realize if they have seen animated films, if they've seen cartoons, they're probably already familiar with, with you. They've heard your voice. You've done hundreds of characters, probably, maybe even a thousand. I don't know, Charlie. It's a lot. I should quit counting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, exactly. I understand why. We, we looked at your Wikipedia page and it just we just had to keep scrolling and scrolling. But before we talk about what you know, you're doing currently, everyone gets their start somewhere. And you did really interesting things before you even got into the entertainment business. Tell, talk to us about that. Well, <laughs> oh, geez. I had a couple of stopgaps, but um, yeah, I mean, some of my, the highlights of my wonderful peppered life. Um, I was a janitor uh, at a church in Nyack, New York, and that was after I had worked uh, for a while as an actor. I just dropped out and lived on a houseboat in Nyack, New York, where my sister lived. I li still lives. And um, I cooked, I baked bread. <laughs> bread and quiche for a whorehouse in New York. Um, but I had a, I, <laughs> I couldn't afford my heat. And so I only knew how to make two things. I had my friend Linda, who's a brilliant oncologist in Tucson, I just saw uh, a month ago. We've been friends since high school. She knew, she taught me two things to bake and cook. And so that heated my Hell's Kitchen apartment, which was freezing. And so there's a knock on my door one day, some very trolley kind of gal is at the door. And she said, what are you baking? I invited her in. And it turned out she ran a, a house of ill repute, I should say. Okay. And so she uh, um, asked me if, if she brought me the black African hashish, if I would bake it in the bread and the quiche, <laughs> that the girls could serve the guys and so get them high and they'd spend more money. And so um, that's what I did. And uh, I then this was pre-AIDS or anything. It was just, you know, venereal disease, which was bad enough, but it didn't kill you. And so I would always, I would sign uh, in tin foil. I'd make these little notes and say, girls, did you get your checkups? Love, mom. <laughs> and, um, and then they, I, this goes on about a year. I made like five bucks of bread or something. 
and then ding dong, buzz. And I was on the ground floor of this terrible apartment building. And I opened my door and I leaned out to see the little holding tank. And these girls are screaming and yelling, mom, mom. And so I let them in. And I had these amazingly wonderful, brilliant, terrific women who made me get dressed, put threw me in the back of a stretch limo, and they took me out on a night in New York, which I shall never forget. Uh, every club there was, windows to the world and the World Trade Center. Uh, mm. And they were smart, well-educated, funny, interesting people. And it really changed my view. So that was one of my uh, lovely early <laughs> earlier jobs. And, <laughs> slicing onions in a Chinese restaurant and making rice and locking myself in the refrigerator, things that were very good. It all builds character. Builds something. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and now, Charlie, um, we, I mentioned in our introduction that you started in Broadway and you just gave us some, some additional background on some of those other jobs that you have. But I'm wondering, as a kid, were you one of those kids that was just kind of goofing off, making noise, doing sound effects, impersonations, things like that? Or did your love for being behind the microphone and becoming a voice actor, did that come later in life? Was there a particular event or role or something that really triggered that? It's a great question because, yes, it came way later. I was a weird kid. I belonged to nothing, no group. I was uh, an artist. I wanted to be a veterinarian. Uh, I wanted to paint. I wanted to sculpt. I was very smart and very little and took a lot of crap, was bullied a lot. Mm. And my mother was a teacher and she really instilled this great idea that th everything was possible. And in fifth grade, the school that my mother taught at, I had the most wonderful teacher who I heard just died and I loved him. His name was Bob Merkley, he was my fifth grade teacher. And he wanted to do a play about the solar system. This gets better, I swear. And uh, <laughs> he cast me as the sun. I mean, my first lead role. And by the way, I shook. I shook the whole time, but I loved it. And I felt I, felt I belonged someplace. And as time went on, I started to take classes. So Bill, I was a very disciplined kid. I had my acting teacher just died two years ago, Flo. She was 93 when she died. She called me her fourth son. I would see her whenever I was in New York when I, once I moved out to, to LA. And she took all of us kids to the theater in New York uh, for matinees and a summer program. So we saw every summer eight matinees of whatever was on Broadway or off-Broadway for four years. So I saw 32 of some of the most remarkable plays, musicals, experimental stuff, Shakespeare, everything. And it was such an inspiration to me. And weirdly, I ended up directing many of the people that were icons for me as a kid and then becoming friends with them just because life is so strange in in show business so um yeah i was very disciplined and i knew i stopped being smart in high school because i wanted to get the hell out I, <laughs> I was in a prison in school and then i got rebellious and i was doing stupid things and um i got my first play job when i was 15 acting and then I apprenticed at a local theater, uh, which had all the tours of all the great shows. Every week would come in summer stock, huge stars. But when I was 18, I got my actor's equity card and I was in play after play, after play, after play, after play. I was so 
lucky. I did not do my first animated voice until uh, I was uh, already working in theater. Uh, I think I was on Broadway uh, and I got a call to audition for Spike the Baby Dragon in uh, the original My Little Pony. For some reason, they were casting it in New York because Sandy Duncan and Tony Randall were starring in it. And so I auditioned and I got it. I did not know crap from Christmas. I didn't know what end to put the microphone on. And I, and I did it. And I did it. And it was a success. And when I was touring with the show that I had done on Broadway, I happened to be in Philadelphia. Yeah. Right. Hotel. Staying at the Barclay Hotel. Loving that city. And because it was in Philadelphia, they were doing My Little Pony Part 2. Got on a train on my dark day. Did Part 2. Moved to L.A. Uh, I don't want to take all this time with agent stories, but ended up with an agent who, uh, after about maybe three years with that agent, they were producing My Little Pony, the series. And so I got that. And it, by then I had already gotten Smurfs, which was my first show in LA. Uh, but my first job in voiceover, not radio, because I've done a lot of radio commercials, just, you know, as me as some smart ass kid. But it just, you know, for all of you yeah. out there, a career is a career. A career should look like a bad EKG. It is just nothing's linear. <laughs> well, you, there's two two questions I have. One, you mentioned the agents in LA. You kind of glossed over that because uh, you thought I was going to let you get away with not telling this story. When you auditioned for Abrams artists, uh, for you wanted to audition for their voiceover department. Right. What happened with that? Tell that story, Charlie. Well, I was very successful in on-camera commercials. I had done a ton. And if you want to have a great laugh, just go to YouTube and put Charlie Adler commercial reel. Okay. And see what I was at 19. I think the oldest I was in any of those commercials was 22 or 3. No, no, 24. You're in luck. It's the last 48D we had in stock. Because I'm that part of every person that says, we really need a new one of those, or let's eat out tonight. Sit. I'll do the dishes. The G pot scrubber three cleans dishes and pots so well, everybody wants to do it. So the I had a reel and I was uh, a commodity. So they were very willing to sign me in uh, on camera commercials. But in New York during the 70s and 80s, there was no distinction. You were an actor. You had an agent. And it was a matter of course. I could go sing in a nightclub at, at, after work, after doing eight shows a week. I could do a commercial during the day. I could do a radio commercial. It didn't matter. I was just an actor. Nobody made those separations. I come out to LA. I go to get an, uh, an agent. They said, well, you go to see a commercial agent. You go to see a film and TV agent. You got to do a voice agent. So I go to the commercial one. And I said, at the end of the interview, he said, we want to sign you. Great. So well, when can I, uh, uh, what about voiceover? Oh, oh. Very separate department. I thought, what was Rod Serling? I mean, it was like I stepped in something. And I said, well, thanks anyway. And I got up. He said, no, 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 no. Let me talk to him. And he leaves the office. He comes back. He's white as a ghost. And he says, they'll meet you. Like he had been put through hell. So I go down and meet these two terrible women, both of whom are dear friends to this day, but they were terrible. I won't even, I can't say what I called them, <laughs> uh, which I still do to make them laugh. And uh, they were, yeah, yeah, but I had done this hit show in New York and uh, on the tour. And so one of them uh, was kind of excited by that. So she said, well, you know, come back next week and just give us a five minute audition. 
And I didn't know what the hell, what that even meant. But I had big on literacy, worked uh, teaching remedial reading, huge improv background, loved to read children's books out loud to, kid, to kids, volunteered doing it in New York. So I just pulled out children's books, thought about some of the characters that I did that I'm kind of nuts about, put together what I thought was five minutes, went there, but I was so nervous and so uncomfortable and so embarrassed by the idea of it. I don't know what it was. And I had a pith helmet that I wore <laughs> oh, oh man, in New York because I was so shy that when a show would be over, I always said to the hookers that I baked for, uh, that I could get in and out of my clothes faster than they could because my goal was to get the hell out of the theater so I didn't have to meet anybody. I got, I got the hand. It felt wonderful. Gone. Don't talk to me. I, I was so nervous. And I always had this pith helmet. Clever, right? So I'm wearing this pith helmet and I do this audition. And I ask them, can I turn my back so they don't look at me? Who the hell would want to sign that freak, right? I mean, Really, I'm really helping myself there, right? Well, it is a voiceover venue, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's true, but what a moron, what a maroon. So I, I did it, and um, they signed me. Then, then and there, they signed me. And I was up in San Francisco a week later shooting a Beck Spear commercial. I had auditioned for Hanna-Barbera doing the exact same thing. They got me in a, a general audition. I go up to San Francisco, I shoot a Beck Spear commercial. I get to the airport, I check my, yes, ladies and gentlemen, answering service. And a pager and a phone that dialed and took quarters. And um, <laughs> they said, you got Smurfs. Say what? And that was the beginning of this trajectory that I had never entertained, never looked to do, never thought about. But man, oh man. And I got to tell you, flash forward to this horrible time that we're going through. Everybody I know is suffering uh, financially and working. What we are doing in animation is still working. I am working. And I am alternately ashamed because you know, and guilty and thrilled and grateful. It's crazy, but I'm working. Well, someone has to subsidize Bill and I, so don't feel bad about it. <laughs> Do you know how many people, I'm, many people I'm subsidizing now? I love that you said that. The money comes in, I pay out what I need, and the rest is going out to my family and friends, and I couldn't be happier. I'm so grateful. It will I'll come back you. multiplied. So I, I wanted to piggyback on that, Bill, and then I'll let you, I'll let you get in a question. But <laughs> Because you, you were trained on stage, okay, you know, there's a lot of preparation that goes into building a character. Right. My question to you is this, well, it's kind of two part. One, is there a big difference between how you prepare a character for voice acting as opposed to on stage or on camera? And the second part of that is when you book a role, does the voice come first or does the, does the animation come first? Well, I, I'm probably an idiot when I say this, I've never thought about anything I do. Um, I would watch all those actor studio uh, uh, interviews and I'd go, shut up, stop talking about what you do. Because it's so, it's so for me immediate, I don't think about anything. I only feel my way through stuff. And I don't know how to think about it because it's too much for me. I just, it, I just, I just go. And so uh, in terms of, animation so so for me there's not a lot of thought because thought to me interferes with being creative i think if you're thinking 
you're not feeling. And this is a feeling medium. Thinking is for people who use their brains at a different capacity. So that's not what I do. How, but having said that, there are things to be thought and considered when you're doing a play or you're doing a long arc of something, but animation's immediate, it's improvisational, and I never think about the characters as a voice, ever. They're people, they're beings. I don't care if I'm playing a toilet, it's a being that has an emotional life. So for me, it's, it, it, has, to abuse, it has to amuse me, which is terribly selfish, but I gotta, I, be, I gotta be having a good time. If I'm not amused, it ain't happening. And I stink on ice. And I have fought tooth and nail for that privilege with people who have other ideas in control, or they think they're in control of what I should be doing. But I, you can't rob joy from a creative event. And to me, it's a creative event. Uh, they give you pictures, they give you a script, and I go, I get it or I don't get it. And then the, we, they construct a radio play from the recordings, and that gets sent to uh, storyboard artists who do panels that construct a storyboard, and then that goes to uh, the animators, who then draw to what we do. It's a great collaboration. It doesn't certainly does not end with us. It begins with the writing, like everything does, and then it goes to us, and then it gets handed off. And then there's music, and there's sound effects. There's foley artists who come in and make the clippity clop of the horses, and a you know a head getting smacked. There's all these wonderful artists that you know congeal. Is that a word? It's amazing all that, that goes into it. And, and I really appreciate the way that you just described it. And one of the, one of the things that we were hoping to do, uh, Charlie, and, and this kind of goes back to something Rosie said a while back in terms of that list of the characters you voiced being a mile long to where you got carpal tunnel scrolling through Wikipedia, you know, through all of them. And then if you clicked on a link, there'd be another link with all these other voices that, that you did as well. I've never gone on it. I, I don't even. I'm, I, I, <laughs> yeah, you've done a lot. <laughs> so here's here's what we were hoping we could do just to have a little bit of fun because there was one particular animated series that you were heavily involved in very popular cow and chicken mm. and yeah. I, we were wondering if we could maybe ask a question well i know rosie has a question for cow i have a question for cow and i have a question for someone else okay but i'll let rosie go, go for it if okay. It's, so, if it's big cow, son, it's big son. Yeah. Oh, yes. Cow. <laughs> yeah. If you could be anyone in the world for a day, yes. who would it be? Ooh, well, I think I would be Jane Goodall because I love monkeys. <laughs> Yo, I could pet them and hold them and squeeze them and love them. Yo, <laughs> I would be a doctor, Dr. Jane Goodall. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you, Cal. I, I love talking to you. I love your hair. Do you use mayonnaise? Yes, I do. <laughs> I can't even remember what my question... Oh, wait, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. So, my question, Charlie, is for Red Guy. Uh, ooh. What I'm wondering is, Red Guy, could mm. you tell us something about Charlie that no one else knows? <laughs> well, <laughs> one of the things that I can tell you about Charlie is that no one knows is that I am him. <laughs> I hold the key. <laughs> oh, oh, that hurts so good. <laughs> 
Oh, you are so wonderfully off. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, you're fabulous. Gosh, that's I'm like I love wonderfully off. That that suits. Me. I I love that. And you know, Charlie, I, I got to throw one other question in there. Now, this one is from me, and this is to you. Okay. Because okay? I'm noticing you've you've got short sleeves on. And I'm seeing these these huge pipes there in the sleeves. So what do you do to, to stay in such great shape? I work out. I mean, I, I've been working out since, honestly, I started working out when I was 19 because I understood a couple of things. I understood that I could not be defined by uh, kids in school in the gym when I was a skinny little kid. It's something I always wanted to do. And I love to play soccer. I was great at soccer. but um, it, I was curious about it, one. And two is, I also understood that once I started to get into it, I started to feel so good. I mean, really good all the time. And it really applied to breath control, to doing eight shows a week, to what I ate. I was so disciplined. You know, a lot of my friends are really messing around with stupid stuff, not me. I was very disciplined. And and I still, I still work out a lot because, and I have a gym in my, my house, which I'm very lucky. If I had to go somewhere, I would be Jackie Gleason. I'd be the size of Jackie Gleason. I just wouldn't, I can't, I can't be bothered. And I sing in my gym, which works on my voice and my breath control and all that. I just want to be alone. And I consider that my most, uh, it sounds so ridiculous to say these words. Those are sacred. That's not right. It's the one place that I have utter privacy and autonomy. I, I can only interact with me and three dogs who come into the gym and hang out and coach me every now and then. Wow. Question for you uh, in regards to, we've talked before about how sometimes art touches people in ways that we really can't know until someone comes up to us mm. and shares a story. And, and, and I don't know, are you willing to share the story that you shared the other night when we were yeah. talking? Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, because basically, you don't believe it from this, but basically I'm very shy and I'm very hermetic when I can be, when I'm allowed to be. I live in the woods. I'm really out in the mountains in the woods, which I consider a public service, but my neighbors do. <laughs> and, um, I would throw a Christmas party for my agents every year at, at my house. And uh, I have a bar, not that I ever use it. And um, a girl I spoke to every day, I hadn't met for a year every day who gave me my schedule who whatever doll she's standing at my bar and I'm shaking martinis and I hand her her martini and she starts to cry and I thought what the hell have I done and I'm so paranoid about that I guess automatically I go what have I done what have I done and I said Marielle are you all right what's the matter she said every day Every day I would come home from school. And she tells a story that her parents were divorced, her father had been dying, uh, was very ill. Uh, she was a latchkey kid. And every day she came home and she, what salvaged her soul in her words, not mine, was Tiny Tunes. And she said, I can't believe I'm in Buster Bunny's house. And it was partially surreal. And then it was something that woke me up to the fact that, you know, I, I'm at a microphone, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my job, and it's a job, I call it work, I'm going to work, and I come home from work, and 
I leave it behind. I don't think about it. And here's somebody who 25 years later, or 20, maybe 20 years later, I don't know, is telling me it touched her. And it was the first time I thought about it. You know, in the theater, you get an immediate, you know, then and there that it's touched somebody. Then and there. Or it hasn't. But you know, then it, it re, it's real time. Done. This was a whole other event. And I started to really consider that I wasn't working in a vacuum that, that it, it meant something to somebody. And I, that meant a lot to me because I had the best teachers. I had people that inspired me. I had people who took the time to talk to me. I had moments that changed me. And sometimes I got to thank the people and sometimes I didn't more so now, you know, it's weird. I really did swoon a lot when people walked in and I was directing them or acting with them. And I would, I would get to say, you know, as a colleague, I got to tell you something. When I was a kid, you came on this tacky school bus in a hot summer day because our teacher wrote a note to you and you took the time and you talked to us and, and, it made, and you had another show to do. You took that time. So it's all, you know, it's all, all these events sort of conspire to make a life, but I never thought of myself as any part of that you know, because I don't think of myself that way. And I started to think of myself that it does make a difference. And I am, I'm, I'm an old person. And I like the idea of teaching. And I, it's important for me to, to let myself feel that. It's very selfish when you deny people the right to say thank you. Oh, that's a great perspective. What do you think Buster Bunny might say to her to comfort her? Oh, Trish, I love you. <laughs> Rope it in, Marianne. <laughs> Have another martini, Toots. <laughs> love it. Thank you. Thank you. We loved what you did on Dream of Denver's book, uh, yeah. Ferrets in a Box. Yeah, me too. I enjoyed it. And it seems that, um, you know, it was so organic for you. Yeah, it was because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And, you know, typical, you know, here, turn on your phone, which is like, I don't know how to work my toaster. You hit the thing and start doing it. And I'm like, bang, bang, bang. and um, I enjoyed the book so much that whatever. I mean, you know, it wasn't my greatest Four hits, but the message was important. The book was important. The story was important. The kids and in imagination, kids being isolated, especially <laughs> now, was important. And here's something else. Read. I mean, reading is everything. I am, and I'm going to get this message across, and I hope you keep this, because i got to tell you something. The one thing that drives me nuts is that if kids don't have access, we have a thing called public schools. If kids by demographics, by location, by lack of funds, can't eat, can't get supplies, and now in this isolated state are forced to go to school and use these boxes, this internet, and they don't have that, they are being completely and utterly neglected. And more than anything, more than anything, and now especially, this is where our resources, in my opinion, have to go. How are kids who are not learning what they need to learn to be whole and to become, to be possible, where are they getting it? If they can't even go to school and they can't afford lunch to go to school, who's taking care of these kids? 
And you can say you've got to read, but if the kids don't have the tools to read, how are they, where are they going to, where are they going to read? Yeah, that's really important. More people need to be mindful. And as much as many people who are in positions to be useful and mindful, that's where it's important. Enough people suffer and have an awareness of their own suffering. Enough people can feel things, but it's when you are in a position to take that mindfulness and push it forward into usefulness and action, that's where, that's where all of that lives to me. So, you know, it's one thing to go when people go, oh, and then do nothing. You know, that has to be translated into an action, I hope. Okay, the sermon's over. I like to end a lot of our shows by asking our audience to make a difference for somebody every day. And you clearly have made a difference for God knows how many on so many days for so many years. So thank you, Charlie, so much for joining us tonight on the show. I really do appreciate it. I know my partner in crime does as well. And I think everybody watching this show will appreciate it. So folks, I'm gonna say it to you, as Charlie has done for years, make a difference for someone every day and make every day a great day. Bye folks, we'll see you next week. All right guys, thank you so much for having me. Really thank you, it's a pleasure. Our pleasure, thank you Charlie. You guys, Optimus Prime placed me in charge of this team. Okay, if we're so much better, why don't we run things here? Only to help spawn our new army. The Fallen decrees it. After all, in your absence, someone had to take command. Not to call you a coward, Master. <laughs>